So what we have on this edition of Life of Brian, dot, 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 Mannix, that is, welcome to it, is a bit of Glenn A. Baker, a bit of Joe Vitale, a bit of Tim Henwood, and a lot of Brian Mannix. Well, let's not have too much of Brian Mannix. I think the uh, our guests will be far more interesting than anything I could come up with, Kev. Can you have too much of Brian Mannix? Well, some yeah. people tend to say, I've just had enough of him, you know, <laughs> so I just... The guests on the program today include Glenn A. Bacon. Now, this is part one of our chat with Glenn. Absolutely fascinating man. Yeah. The, the rock brain of the of the century. You All you have to do basically is mention someone's name and he's got a story about him. Well, he's got stories about people that aren't even in the rock and roll industry. <laughs> Correct. And we'll get to that uh, during this interview. But uh, this one we'll talk about the Beatles, going to talk about uh, his association, obviously, as manager of Old 55. A couple of moments he had... Uh, with Roy Orbison, which are absolutely fascinating. Um, and also one moment yeah, you had with Stevie been, Nicks. Yeah, well, you, uh, you know what I think of when I think of Stevie yes, Nicks. Yes, I do probably. know what you think of when you think of Stevie oh. Nicks, and we'll, we'll get to the bottom of that later. But Well, that's what she was doing ex- with it in the end. Exact, take- no, we don't need to do it. Well, in fact, Glenn A. Baker sat her on her bottom, so... Who knows? Who well, knows the ramifications? She would have got, of that. A, got a huge cocaine hit with her <laughs> bum in the ground. Right. We also have part two of uh, the chat that Mark Lane from Urquhart's and I had with uh, Joe Vitale, the uh, exceptional drummer, uh, with people like the Eagles and Joe Walsh. And we talk about uh, that that fabulous song he was involved with, Joe Walsh, not. Rocky Mountain Way, which he wrote, but Life's Been Good, which is, I reckon, one of the great rock songs of all time. Great lyric. Oh, That's the a best, really good the lyric. Best lyrics of all time. And also going to catch up with your mate, Timmy Henwood. Yay! He's got a new single out. Yes, he has. Palace of the Kings have got a new song. We're going to play that at the end of the show called Children of the Evolution. Nothing to do with uh, Mark Boland's T-Rex. Mark Boland. No, nothing no, to do nothing. with that. But a really good song, and we'll play that at the end. But of course, Nothing to do with Bridge Over Troubled Waters either. No. No, all and it's got nothing to do with Gary Glitter. No, <laughs> none of us have. <laughs> none of, well, thankfully, thankfully, if you do have something to do with Gary Glitter, please call your local law enforcement. <laughs> now, Murcotts, uh, the people who, uh, of course, are our fabulous podcast partners, you'll hear Mark Lane from Murcotts later on talking to Joe Vitale with me, but uh, they are the people who are going to help you be a better driver, and God knows we need more, more better drivers on the, on the roads, Brian. Well, the roads are more crowded these days, Kev. With dickhead. You know, there's there's less room for error because there's so many cars. Yes. And, you know, and say, you know, in the 70s, you can drive for ages and not even see a car, but not these days. There's cars everywhere and you need to be topping your game to keep you and your family safe. And there's only one way to do that, Kev, and that's to get on the phone right now and dial one three hundred triple five five seven six. That number again, Kev, is one three hundred triple five five seven six. Or go to the website mercots.edu.au. They'll sort you out. They'll make you a better driver. They'll make anyone you know a better driver. So uh, please uh, take their services and use them wisely. And uh, you can get a gift certificate if you like and give it to someone for a, a milestone that's coming up. Do that. 
Two a gift words. certificate for that for that really shit driver in your life. <laughs> yes. I told you, Hallmark's going to start making cards for this very soon. Let's get to our first guest. It is Glenn A. Baker, the rock guru, the rock brain, the rock genius of every century. Yes, he is, Kev, and let's, let's hear why. Buddies, good to be Hello. speaking to you. We all Hello. ready to go? I'm ready to go. I've been building up for this. I've been actually, you know... Pouring foam on my fire, you might say. <laughs> well, Brian's been doing the same, so here's this very piercing question to ask you to start us off, Glenn. And what is KFC? that piercing question? What? How was your KFC that you had last night, Glenn? Well, let's let's just move on from that. Let's not reveal too much to the general public. <laughs> <laughs> so, how is the uh, the rock brain of the universe going these days? What I get by, I must admit, the turn down the um, yeah, the COVID nineteen period um, put a dampener in all our sales. These days, I'm I'm writing now a obituary, which I do very often for the Sydney Morning Herald. I'm writing it for the great Joy McKean, who was oh. one of the greatest songwriters in Australia ever. She was married, of course, to Slim Dusty about fifty or sixty years. So I do a lot of obituary writing, which leads me to ask the question is, who's going to write my obituary when I'm gone? Shit, I was worried there for a minute. I thought you were working on Brian's. Oh. Ah, well, mm, moving right along. <laughs> Fair enough. Fair but enough. I, I, I must admit, though, rock gods of the 80s tend to be a little bit removed from what I – most of the things I'm writing now are, are, for, are for people – basically, who have a few more miles on the clock and come from a, a, a rather earlier form of music. Right. Well, hopefully I've got a few more miles on the clock because um, still I would have things that. I, I want to do. I was just looking, you are born in 1952, so that means in 1964 you were 12. Yes. And in 1964 the Beatles came to Australia. So I'm just wondering whether the Beatle tour is what you steered you in the path that your life has taken. It's very interesting. People just presume, Brian, that yep. because I wrote a book on the Beatles Australia tour that I must have been on the road, that I must have been at every show. The reality was, no, at the age of 12, I was not seeing the Beatles live. I have to be really honest. The first show I saw live when I was about eight was the Mickey Mouse Club at Sydney Stadium. However, I did not see, see see the Beatles. However, I did a pretty good job, I would like to think, in writing a documentary book on that tour and, and subsequently speaking in, in television specials and all, all sorts of things. But I, I guess I've been turned to over the years whenever there's been any sort of anniversary about that tour. I mean, yeah, it was 30 years ago that the Beatles came here and 35 years ago and 40 years ago and 45, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Because on the presumption that people think I must have been there, I must have been on 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 the tour. But now I've just turned seventy, and so I have to say that I was not on the tour. People were people much older were there, not I. I've I've read that book. It's uh, the Beatles Down Under. Yeah, that's the name of it. You've got it. You've got it. Yeah, yeah. it's a really good book. Um, I particularly liked. Um, the reviews you did of how the individuals played, and I don't think George Harrison got a, a very good review of his 
uh, live ability, um, if that rings a bell to you. George was probably not up there in the rank of all the other 60s guitar heroes like you know, Page and Plant and Beck, etc. But I think mm. he was good. But there were moments during the of them live in Japan, pretty much toward the end of their live live run, where a couple of his solos sound like packing crates collapsing. <laughs> <laughs> you know, they were not all that good. I mean, look, I think George was, uh, and George, well, Fuko, when he did while my guitar gent- gently weep, he had to bring his old mate Eric Clapton into the studio to play the guitar break on it because he didn't think that he was all that capable. But the thing about George on that tour that was really interesting, not so much whether he could or could not play, was that he was the one most uncomfortable with the sort of fame that was that was being metered out to them. And he was the one who, in fact, was responsible for them not going back on the road after they played their final concert at Candlestick Park in San Francisco in 1966, as I recall. Yep. And, and so, yeah, he would actually always stand so He wouldn't do it. it it's, a, it's as simple as that. So, but John and, 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 and Paul would have... But actually, here he hear the screaming outside the windows, and they would go outside and and then they'll sort of wave around a bit and come come back. But they will let it like wash over them. But George was of the opinion that we're just human human beings. How dare people be react like this? This is this is altogether awkward and 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 unfortunate. There were different personalities that play in the Beatles. I mean, Ringo was kind of like so so dopey. I don't think he, he cared much one way or another. But 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 really, George was was affected by it. Hey, yeah, uh, and that that book obviously also uh, highlights the the fact that there was an, another Beatle sort of emerged uh, out of Hong Kong and via uh, some little drum kit and was you know then ceremoniously put in an airport sitting on his own after having the adulation of you know hundreds of thousands of Aussies screaming and yelling and carrying on. Jimmy Nickel then got Kaibosh back to Hong Kong after his little <laughs> stint. Well, you're basically you're all, almost right. He was an Englishman. He had played with Georgie Fame and and the Blue Fame, and um, he was enlisted when Ringo had tonsillitis. And rather than call off the tour, I, I couldn't see it happening these these days. But in fact, they had, had to do dates in uh, Scandinavia, and they had to go to Hong Kong, and then on the way to, way to Australia. So they actually got this guy, Jimmy Nickel. And they taught him how to actually comb his hair forward mm-hmm. so that he could look almost like a mop, mop top. He would later make a record when the tour was over called Husky, which sounded like a bit like a Tonight Show theme. It was mostly an instrumental. And we, it was a big hit in Adelaide where, where, of course, he had appeared in place of Ringo and we never heard of that record ever again. <laughs> but but poor, old, poor old Jimmy, yes, there was a photo in, in the book. He was given five hundred pounds and a gold watch, and he was basically sent back to England with all these promises. Yeah, yeah, we'll take care of you, and yeah, we'll be there for you. And of course, they were never there for him, and they never took care of him. He appeared in re- before he died at some Beatles fest at times, and he would go out and apparently talk to people about being a part-time Beatle, but still, you know. It didn't really do much for the rest of his career. Oh, there you go. Hey, well, one thing a lot of people wouldn't know about you, Glenn, I don't reckon, is that uh, you actually had a number one, you wrote a number one song for All 55 back in uh, back in their heyday. 
I did indeed. In fact, I wrote a few songs for old, old, old 55. Yeah. I wrote their top five hit, Come On, Let's Do It. I wrote a thing called, that Frankie J. Holden did as a solo single called My Right of Way, which for the, was for the film The F.J. Holden. Yeah. But the one I think you're talking about, which went to number one in Melbourne particularly, I think it was number one for seven weeks, and it was called I Want a Rockin' Christmas. And it was pure poetry. Let me just say, it was pure poetry. <laughs> um, listen, can, can I actually quote you? So, oh, so please. I mean, I, I, Shelley, I Keats, the Bronte sisters, but, uh, go, go, let her rip, Glenn. Listen to me, Santa. Won't you bring my lover to me, wrapped up in ribbons, and drop down my chimney? I mean, is that poetry or is it? Author, author. Yes, yes, yes. But it, it won a Golden Card Award. But I remember I took this, this phone call one day from the great Stan Rofe. And Stan Rofe was at 3XY. And he, he felt obliged to tell me that they were about to drop from their playlist and it was the only time they had ever done it, their number one record, which was, of course, my Christmas record. And when I said, well, why are you doing, doing that? I remember Rafe, he said, mate, it's the end of January. <laughs> and I thought that was pretty good reason why they would have to, in fact, remove it from their playlist. But uh, I was very, very, very proud. I was particularly proud of it because at a Carols by Candlelight from the Maya Music Bowl a few years ago with a full symphony orchestra and a full choir, the reformed old 55 went out and did it. That's a wonderful thing to happen to a songwriter. I mean, Brian, you would understand that to have something Absolutely. like that. Jim Manzi would, of course, go off to America and he would live in Hollywood and he would score 25 feature films over the next 25 five years before he came back to Australia and then he to do something like repair his bathroom or something. And uh, and so, yes, that was um, – it, it was a great – but it was a wonderful partnership while it lasted, I have to, I have to say. But old 55 was a pretty extraordinary experience while it lasted. I was only, in fact, the manager of old 55, which was which is my creation, you might say, for about 18 months, maybe maybe two years. It, it was a cyclonic whirlwind of, 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 of an experience. And we had a number one record, an album called Take It Greasy, which knocked ABBA off number one. Yep. And that wow. was a pretty phenomenal experience. And that was, that was something that we could actually boast about for the rest of our lives, that we knocked ABBA off number one in Australia. We toured with Sherbet and Skyhooks and TMG and John Paul Young and ACDC. And we, we did all these phenomenal shows. And, and it was, it, it was like I said, a dizzying experience to be. There was no question about it. And it set me off, I must say, because I went from there and I started doing things like I was the Australian editor of Billboard for 22 years and I would compile albums for record companies and I would have a real position in the Australian music industry. And that didn't come from the fact that I managed folk singers and that before Old 55. It came from being the manager of Old 55. And there were people in, in the industry that actually recognised the, the importance of, of that achievement. And so, I mean, even I managed a band after our 55 called Chic. Yeah. And we even had Fander and Young produce one of their singles, but they did, did that out of their admiration for what I'd done with old 55. Was that so, so much in love? Did they produce so much in love? Yes. 
Yeah. It was the Mighty Avengers song, and it's um and, and written by Jack Jagger and Richards. Yeah, I remember and that. What a, what, a, what a memory you have! I know. Remember, I remember. I was on. I was on. I was doing nights. It would have been seventy eight, maybe. Yeah, yeah. You got it. You got yeah, it. Yeah, yeah. I was doing nights at three XY. Uh, nights at four IP. Uh, so yeah, no. We. I remember Cheek. I remember Cheek coming in and uh, talking to him. And that I do remember that song. Well, it's interesting to note actually that they were quite big in Melbourne. Well, it was the charting record in Melbourne and in and in Brisbane and in Adelaide. It just the only place it didn't chart was their hometown of Sydney. Oh. We were really, really upset. Well, they were really upset that they couldn't actually say to all their mums and dads and girlfriends and brothers and sisters, "Hey, that's us on on the radio." It didn't actually work work out that way. <laughs> but never moving right along. Do you play an instrument? No, I play the phonograph. Right, fair enough. People think it's very odd that that the rock bread of the universe should not play an instrument, should not have played an instrument. When I was young, I went to 12 schools in 10 years. I bounced all all, all around the countryside, and I was never in one place long enough, really, to actually to take lessons. But I had a a, a deep and abiding love for rock and roll. Because remember, I was perfectly positioned to come online. I mean, basically... I was at a school in, in Western New South Wales when the Beatles arrived in Australia, and I can remember just watching it on television and hearing it on the radio and being very excited. In other words, I was there for the Beatles and the Stones and the Beach Boys and the Who, etc., etc. So they became the backbone of my musical enthusiasm. And so, yes, but I didn't actually play. It's one of, one of the great regrets, although I've spent most of my life surrounded by musicians. And so many of them have said, Glenn, how come that you know more about my career or our career than we do? I mean, I have done that. I've gone on television, I've gone on radio, and I've been able to actually convey my great enthusiasm for the music I I grew up with without actually being the guy who's actually plucked the notes, who's who's played the instrument. Glenn, to the point where did you not, in an interview with Roy Orbison, actually correct him about a person who played something on one of his records? And he went, oh, yeah, actually, you're right. Yes, I did do that. That that interview, by the way, which was only supposed to go for half an hour, went for about ninety minutes. And Paddy Moston, who was actually prepared to actually to to say that's it, get out of it, was actually so caught up in it that he said, "Keep going, keep going, keep going." Uh-huh. But Roy and I hit a particular moment in the in the conversation where he knew that I knew, and I knew that he knew, whatever, whatever. So I was able to gently correct him, but I think he took it with with great enthusiasm. <laughs> what talking about? Look, I've done fantastic interviews over the years. I mean, I've been on tour with the Rolling Stones in Africa, and I mean, I've done all sorts of things. But I must admit, Roy would count as one of them because he told me this story about how his first hit hit record happened. He said he wrote a song, and he said that the the Everly Brothers heard it and went. Oh, no, 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 it's not really, it's not really for us, Roy. And then he he decided to call into Graceland on his way to Nashville to record. And he went to the gates of Graceland and he pressed the button. And Elvis came over and said, "Look, man, can I catch up with you in the studio in Nashville? It's all, people are lying around all over the place here. It's not a good time." He told him to get to get lost in a way, as Roy saw it. He said he was in fact a bit wounded by it. So he went to Nashville himself and he put it down. And the song was 
Dum 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 de doo Oh yeah, yeah. It was only the lonely, and it became oh. a number one record for him. But only because the Everly Brothers and Elvis Presley had basically shown no great interest in in the song. Now I love hearing about things like that. Yeah. I love it when people actually they they tell me those revelations, how things were recorded, how they came about, and so so yes, I've done literally thousands of interviews over the years yeah. with all sorts of you know rock heroes and rock gods and and you know sort of like icons etc. And it's always been a, a particularly joyful experience. And I've done television and radio shows. And it's, um, well, I did a show called After Dark up here. And it was Donnie Sutherland's show. Now, Donnie had a different way of doing After Dark. He liked to, to sip champagne from, you know, sort of like a, a supermodel shoe or something. While she was, <laughs> but but, but I, I like to get people into a serious guy. I mean, I've got Stevie Marriott of the Small Faces in. If you have even got a, mem- a member of the Ruttles to talk about being a member of the Ruttles, and uh, yeah, oh. I mean, Glenn Sherrick to talk about the Twilight. In other words, I actually did it. I took a whole different approach. And I even got the man who wrote Hitchhiker's Guide, Guide to the Galaxy, Douglas Adams. I got him to read a, my favorite passage from, from the book. It was pure joy being able to actually have all these people talk about all their music experience. Although I did have. Billy J. Kramer, who had hits written for him by by the Beatles. And I couldn't work out why he, he had to go to the toilet <laughs> immediately before the show and why he came out on the set with very wide, wide eyes. Oh. And was, I was never that way inclined. I didn't even drink or smoke or do drugs or anything. I was a really clean-living guy. And so basically I retained in my grey matter, in my cells, all this information. That's probably why I did retain that, you know, that information. Yeah, but Adam, um, you're not you're not squeaky clean, uh, Baker. You're not getting away with that. I I'm led to believe I have information that Brian and I have obtained that you once knocked Stevie Nicks on her ass backstage at a at a concert. It was purely unintentional. Oh, I mean, I didn't. That's what mean they all to... say, Glenn. <laughs> Look, the story is Bob Dylan wanted to meet me. Yes, that's exactly what I'm going to have it engraved on my tombstone. I mean, I got a call from Paul Dainty saying, Glenn, Bob Dylan would like to meet you. And I go, yeah, 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 pull the other one, pull the other one. Anyway, so he said, no, no, he really would like to meet you. He's read for me, you wrote, and he saw you at his press conference. Anyway, so I was really excited. I mean, if you're going to meet anyone, meeting Bob Dylan is pure and absolute excitement. I mean, white-knuckled excitement. So anyway, so I'm right. It was... During sound, sound check, it was at Sydney Entertainment Centre, and I'm running through those labyrinthine passages, passageways, and all of a sudden, I come around the corner, and whammo, I collide, I collide with someone, and knocked her ass over, tip, you might say. I mean, she was, and I bend down to pick her up, and I'm, I'm profusely apologising, saying, oh, I'm sorry, and, I'm, and it was it was TV next and she unleashed a tirade. <laughs> I won't go into the words here. But anyway, and and then she just dusted herself, self off, and and she went away. She was, by the way, having a relationship with with Mike Campbell of the Heartbreakers, and Dylan was on tour with Tom Petty and the Heartbreakers. So that that's why she was on the tour. I think that she would come on toward the the end end of the set for harmonies or something. But anyway, yes. 
So I'm not squeaky clean. I almost ended the career of Stevie Nicks. Very good. Very good. Inter- interesting you say that she dusted herself off. Does that up her nose? Because <laughs> she was pretty good at that from what I Oh, well, um, well spotted, Brian. <laughs> yes, yes. Well, you could almost see the plastic septum. <laughs> in, in her nose. Oh, I mean, goodness. And, and you could tell why all her video clips were done in soft focus with Vaseline smeared on the lens. <laughs> up up close, she was, she was not looking very good, to be perfectly honest. There's no sense in dancing around the subject. A wound gets worse when it's treated with neglect. Well, don't turn now. There's nothing here to fear. All right, there's a little bit of uh, Stevie Nicks. There's a little bit of Stevie Nicks in all of us, Brian. Ah, yeah. <laughs> Stop it. <laughs> Just cut it out. Stevie Nicks. <laughs> yeah, all right. Uh, now we're going to go to uh, We've got more of Glen A. Baker coming up, and I should point out in part two of Glen A. Baker, going on the road with the Rolling Stones. How good's that? Yep. And meeting yeah. Fidel Castro and almost getting himself shot. That's coming up in part two of our chat with Glen A. Baker in the next episode. Six Perkins talking about the Rolling Stones because they did a sport to the Stones when they came and played the G. Mm. And and he said that they had this pool table in backstage and, you know, they were playing pool. Ronnie and Keith were playing pool. And Tex Witness, they were the most shithouse pool players that he's ever seen. Because <laughs> <laughs> well, they were rubbish. When you own the table, you can be the worst player at, at, the, uh, at the tournament. Yeah, I suppose so. Yeah. I just imagine that Keith and Ronnie would be real good at pool. Yeah, I would have thought so. Keith just looks like a pool hustler, doesn't he? He does. He but, looks like... Uh, apparently... No good. Probably lawn bowls might be his go. Yeah. But pool <laughs> ladies go. <laughs> <laughs> All right, let's get to uh, part two of our chat with uh, Joe Vitale. Mark Lane from Murcotts joins me as we talk to Joe about... Uh, well, we'd, we'd finished in part one talking about Rocky Mountain Way, which was the uh, the big Joe Walsh hit that... Uh, that Joe Vitale co-wrote with him. Uh, now I'm going to talk uh, to him about a, a song that uh, it just got the best rock and roll lyrics uh, of all time and uh, an interesting song of how it was all put together. So let's find out about that with Joe Vitale. Well, just, just before you do, since mm. Mark's doing my job mm. in this interview, mm. well, I've got to go down to Murcott's and take a few driving <laughs> well, lessons. Oh, great. <laughs> we've, done a, we've done a bit of a swap. <laughs> so I'm, down, I'm off to Murcott's to teach some driving excellence. You mentioned how uncomplicated that song is. Another song that, that you're involved with with Joe with Life's Been Good, which is probably one of the most complicated songs that he ever would have been involved with in his life. Yeah, that that's a whole that's a whole library right there. Yeah. <laughs> that song, that um, that song um, that came in in three or four different pieces when he brought it to the studio, and we cut them separately. And the brilliance of Bill Simzik, uh, he's after we cut stuff, three or four pieces. There, there were supposed to be three or four different songs, 
you know, and there was a reggae song that Joe wanted to do. That's the verses part of that song. There was like a kind of a funky Rolling Stone kind of thing. That's the intro guitar lick. You know, there's and those were four in three or four individual pieces that we were going to work on. Because Joe, the way Joe works is, you know, and he, he says it himself. He says, you got to have a lick. Right. And he's right. His guitar licks are, are priceless. They're like hits right there, you know, and they're so signature and, and they're so Joe Walsh licks. Right. That. So he goes down and that was killer lick. So that was going to be a song that was going to be kind of just a funky kind of Rolling Stone groove kind of song. But we never finished any one of the three or four pieces. Mm-hmm. We just kept, we cut them and just, you know, worked them out a little bit, played them a little bit. And uh, Bill sent us home on Friday. We came in on Monday and he said, sit down and he hit play. And it he put it all together as one piece. And the only thing different is that uh, we did add the middle section, that, uh, 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 that little se- se- uh, sequencer part, we added that in. Uh, that wasn't a hard to do. And so it's actually, it's one of those also drum songs, and this is to Joe's great credit. There's not many rock and roll songs where you recognize the song from the drums, the beginning. So you've got Led Zeppelin's Rock and Roll. Um, you right. can recognize that, you know, Queen with We Will Rock You. But soon as Joe starts off uh, Life's Been Good with that dun, 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 right, right. everybody knows what it is. Mm. It's instantly recognisable. So we always talk about the riff, Joe Walsh's riff, but you, then you've got Joe Vitale's drum, which actually people recognise straight away. Yeah, good point. Yeah, it was just one of those, Just it was, it's so nothing. It's just a simple little thing. When you play it live and and you hit the first, bam, doom, 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 you know, it's so fun because it's just you and they know immediately what song it is. And, you know, I mean, stuff like that's very magical. You don't really plan that. There's no plan. I got an idea. I'm going to create a riff that'll be like amazing. That's not what we do. You know, we, we just, that's the way we played it. And um, it's actually difficult for the guitar player to come in on that drum because it's very awkward but you know we've done it for 50 years so but again like to to recognize an a song from the opening drum beat is it's pretty cool that we got in that category it's kind of cool yeah i want to talk about another song you wrote which which the eagles did pretty much in a row which which uh, Mark alluded me to uh, what Bob Dylan said about this this song, which is yeah, which is unbelievable to come from someone like Bob Dylan to the way he talked about Pretty Maids. It, it blew our mind. We we couldn't believe it when when that happened. Joe called me and he goes, "Did you see it?" And I know what he was talking about. And I said, "What the heck, man?" He said, "He said it doesn't get any better than that." Or that Bob Dylan said it was one of his favorite songs. <laughs> I mean, I don't. I, 10,000 songs that could be your favorite song. He picked that one. You know, it was pretty, pretty amazing. I just love to hear his version of it. Hey, hurry up. No, you know what? I, I think he would, there's somehow or other, he would make it cool. <laughs> Well, it was it was the B side of Hotel California. So from, uh, from a royalty point of view, you, uh, you cleaned up with that one. 
Yeah, well, we did pretty well with that. I got to <laughs> tell you something. I, I just read yesterday on Facebook, somebody posted it. There's an Eagles site or something. Somebody posted it that Pretty Maids All in a Row was, you, you know, the show Jeopardy? Yeah. That was one of the questions was, what band did Lion Eyes and Pretty Maids All in a Row? And this idiot contestants didn't even know the answer. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, pretty maids all in a row could be a little more obscure, but come on, Lion Eyes, yeah. really? You didn't know who did that song? Oh, oh, the Eagles, Alex. You even own? <laughs> yeah, yeah. I thought that was pretty cool. Uh, I just uh, by my, I was just looking through Facebook, and I, all of a sudden, I saw this picture of this TV screen, and and you know, with that Jeopardy-looking yep. thing, and it had, and I saw pretty maids all in a row, and then. Anyway, and they were laughing about it because none of the contestants got it right. They couldn't answer it. Good, good. <laughs> hey, one song I wanted to ask you about, which I, I, I saw an interview where you talked about the three versions that there are of In the City. Now, there was the original version you did for the movie. Then there was for the, the version yeah. that, that the Eagles did. And then there's a third version that you and Joe were going to do. Did you, did you do that? Yes, we um, uh, a lot of a lot of bands, uh, artists, a lot of big timers, they uh, re-record stuff because then they have full ownership of it. Because years ago, the, the labels owned a lot of stuff that they really, I don't know, they they did just grab, grab, grab. They owned everything, and 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 we lost a lot of control of a lot of the masters. What Joe did was he uses his tunes uh, for uh, other outlets, you know, movies, TV, commercial, whatever, you know, who who knows? And he was able to afford to go in. A lot of artists can afford it. You go in the studio and you re-record stuff and just like the record. And then what's cool is then you own it 100%. You own everything. And, 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 you know, because it's the sound recording is, is what the labels own. So what Joe did, well, there's two sides of that story. One, yes, it's a good idea. But two, you got to be able to sound good enough to re-record your stuff, you know. <laughs> and, and, and this was done like 30 years after it was recorded, you know. But Joe sounds amazing on these things. And, and I would challenge, I wouldn't challenge Mark Lane. But I would challenge anybody to listen to the redo of some of these things we did and and challenge them that play the original and play because Bill Simzik mixed it sounds just like the original. Mm -hmm. And so but like I said, it's a great idea. And a lot of people are doing that. And I don't blame them because then they own the whole thing and the labels are going to say, no, you can't use that song or whatever. But again, you have to be you have to have. The, the the goods with Joe he guy is so good he sounds just like he did when he was a teenager you know so um we cut these things and they, they sound great so so in the city was one of the songs we did the movie version I think was a little sloppy it was good it was a little sloppy because the mix was TV I mean movie people mixed it and you know they they, they shouldn't be mixing records back then now people are making records from music mixing for movies today is brilliant it's killer they're really good but years ago this was like 79 was it no no maybe earlier than that um the mix wasn't that great it was cool in the movie and all that but and the eagles loved the song and they did it 
and uh, they did it, but it's it sounded you know like the Eagles did that song, right? You know, and what Joe wanted to do was he wanted to revisit it from our movie ver- version, the the energy of that movie version, right? But but do it like you know he always wanted to do it. So what's what's on for twenty twenty first to twenty twenty three, Joe? What are you doing? Well, um, I've been uh, working uh, a lot in the studio for different people. I do a lot of sessions for people, and um, uh, I'm going to do a, a rock camp with, you know, we were talking about earlier uh, coming up here in July, but kind of waiting to see what Joe wants to do because the Eagles are on break right now. And Explain yeah. the rock camp, Joe, because we don't have rock camp in Australia. This rock camp thing that you've been doing for a number of years, and the yeah. players that you've actually played with on this rock camp. What's it What's it actually all about, the rock camp? All right. What it is is years ago uh, in, in, here in the States, we had baseball fantasy camp. Yep. And what it was was you paid like, you know, two grand or something, and you went to a, like some city where the, the actual team, like the New York Yankees or, or wh- whoever, uh, L.A. Dodgers, that's where they did their spring training and you paid X amount of dollars and you got to go there for about three or four days. They gave you a real Dodgers or, or whoever uniform and you and you got to, if you could get bat with like some superstar pitcher from the Dodgers or wh- whoever. And you get to hang with them guys and learn from them. Anyways, yeah. um, David Fishoff. Uh, who runs rock camp he also was involved with Ringo Starr's all-star band and so he got the idea about rock and roll fantasy camp so what it is he gets like two or three mega stars we've had Joe Perry we had the late great Jeff Beck Brian Wilson we've had yes we've had you know blue oyster cult guys we've had all these people I got them Sammy Hagar um I mean on and on and on and on and so what it is all these people there's usually about 50 or 60 campers and they come to rock camp and then I'm a counselor so what they do is with 60 uh, campers uh we we divvy it up to like you know 10 bands. Each band has a counselor. And my job as a counselor is I get these people and some of them are like uh, just beginning and some of them are way advanced. And they mix and match and give me four, five, six guys, girls, whatever. I have to train them in two days to learn not only some songs to play live, but we also have to go over songs like when we had Joe Perry we have to do an Aerosmith song with him or with Sammy Hagar. We had to do, you know, a a, a Van Halen song or whatever. And Brian Wilson, whoever we had. Yes, that was a nightmare because those those songs are hard. You know, everybody, every band, all 10 bands did owner of a lonely heart. (laughs) So, and so what they get to do is X amount of dollars. You get to go to some city. And it was fun when it was in Vegas. That was really fun. Uh, you, you pay X amount of dollars. You go to camp. You get together with five or six people. You form a band and you get to play live in a club with people. And you also get to play in, in front of people with some big star. You get to play, you know, uh, you know, an Aerosmith song with Joe Perry playing in the band. It's a fantasy. That's why it's called Rock and Roll Fantasy Club. We have people there for anywhere from age, you know, 
14 to 80 you know there's all these people and they they dig their guitars out of their closet and and they come to rock camping it's it's a lot of fun it's a lot of work but it, i'll tell you what for four days it's it's uh you, they bust your ass it's, it's a lot of work <laughs> but it's a lot of fun you know yeah. and then for me and all the counselors we get to play with i got to play with jeff beck and i got to play with you know all because the counselors get to play with the 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 big timers you know so i was able to play with a, a whole bunch of really cool people that i'm fans of you know and so i'm a fan of and so and i can't always do one but i've got about 16 or 17 camps under my belt already yeah. so uh, i well, do them when i can of, speaking of fantasy camps you sort of had your own with lennon didn't you john lennon Yes, that was an amazing, those nights in L.A., uh, he was um, running over material for, uh, uh, which album was it? The um, Bridges? Yes, yes, that's the one. And he, he gathered all these people in L.A. We went to the record plant on Sunday night, four Sunday nights from midnight to five in the morning. And it was like, you know, Ronnie Wood was there, Ringo. Lennon, there was uh, Klaus Vormann, there was like Nicky Hopkins, it was like these, you look around the room it was uh, Ronnie Wood um, mm -hmm. Joe Walsh um, and we looked around the room, it's like, oh my god this is this is cool, and so what he, John would do, or John Lennon would do, is he would start on the, he played mostly piano instead of guitar, it was a lot of guitar players, so he sat at the piano and he would start a song, he was test running some material and um, and he'd stop once in a while and he'd say, you know, where do you think we should go now? What, what, what would you do for the bridge or the chorus? Or, you know, it was kind of like developing these songs with all these people. And mostly it was just jamming and having fun. Me, I'm on cloud nine, man. As I'm sitting in a room with Ringo and John Lennon, I'm looking around going, <laughs> what the heck? You know? Yeah. And, and these so, were secret sessions, weren't they, Joe? They were secret. To totally secret. And and they told us from day one, they said two things. No, no cameras. And that was obviously that out of respect. No cameras. And also, do not tell anybody about this because he wanted John Lennon. Come on, it's a Beatle, one of the most famous of the four. And he's in L.A. recording and, and it, you know, it was hush hush, you know. Well, we did four nights, uh, four Sundays in a room and somebody leaked it out. It could have been somebody that worked at the record plant or who knows who. Somebody. And the la on the one Sunday night, the last one we did we're done around five, six in the morning and all right, guys, we'll see you next Sunday. Cause we were going to do this for a while. It was like maybe, you know, a couple of months of this cause he was starting to develop these really great ideas for songs. And so we, we go to leave sun's just coming up and we open the door to go out and in the parking lot is about 5,000 people. Uh. And they're like, John, hey, you know, and it's like, Oh shit. That's, that's the end of that. You know? So he said, that's it. We're done. Yeah. So we wanted to kill the person who <laughs> leaked it, and um, but it was such a such a uh, an honor to be there. To do, what an experience to to see how he worked. He was so mellow and just is beautiful the way he worked these songs and just would sit there and play and he'd say wait wait, wait let me figure this out and he would hum something and, and just his whole approach to writing and all. I could only imagine. All the, the years with the Beatles and those songs, the way they came. I mean, it made a lot of sense watching him work, how that brilliance came out, and especially when you add 
you know, the brilliance of, you know, Paul and Ringo and uh, George along with it. I mean, no wonder, you know, they did what they did. Kevin, have we got time to just ask Joe one last thing? Because he's got so many stories about Walsh over the years, but there's one in particular. The night that Susie found Walsh asleep on the couch. (laughs) What happened there? Oh, Oh, I still hear about that story, you know. Anytime Joe's coming anywhere near town, he's Susie always good. He's not coming here, is he? <laughs> so I said, so we played, I think we played at Blossom Music Center, which is in Akron, Ohio, big, big gig. And um, we had a night off. And uh, and so we invited the whole band down to my house to, to have dinner, you know, and a uh, big, beautiful dinner. And and uh, that's in those were Joe. Joe's drinking days. So, you know, I had several bottles of wine I brought. It was fun. We had a good dinner and some wine and laughs and all that. And uh, so we, we were about two, three hours. We were hanging out, eating and drinking, whatever. And, and, and Joe got tired and he went and got on my couch and fell asleep. And it's in the other room. We couldn't see it from the dining room. And so and um uh, so the guys are getting ready to go and Smokey, you know, Joe's road manager, he was rounding everybody up. All right, let's let's hit the road because I was leaving, too, with the bus. We were leaving to go to the Indianapolis or somewhere. That was our next show. And so Smokey's rounding us all up. And when we got on the bus, uh, the back stateroom door, that was where Joe would usually hang out. It was closed. So Smokey said, all right, he's probably sleeping. Let's, let's, you know, let's don't bother him. Right. And we left, you know, and we're driving down the road. And for some reason, Smokey, he was uncomfortable. But he said, I, I better go see if he's okay. And, and, and whatever. He goes back there and opens the door. There's nobody in that room. And so he goes, oh, no. And meanwhile, meanwhile, and first of all, you got to understand this was before cell phones. Yo, there was no cell phones. You know, this was, you know, uh, uh, long enough ago that anyway. So meanwhile, while we're finding out about that on the bus, my wife is freaking out because she went in. She was kind of cleaning up the table and all that. And she was going and she walks into the living room and Walsh is passed out on the couch <laughs> and she freaks out. She goes, oh, my God, what am I going to do? Because she couldn't get a hold of us. We couldn't, you know, and and so nobody had a phone on the bus. This was a long time ago. There was no yeah. cell phones. And and so so she's she goes, what do I do with him? And so and poor Susie, she was lost. She was like, I don't know what to do with him. Don't wake him up. Let's, and so finally we realized on the bus, and this is like we drove 80 miles. We were uh-huh. like almost two hours or hour and a half out, you know? And so we realized that we left Joe back at the house. And so we pulled off at some truck stop or something where there was a a payphone. Yeah. And I called home and I said, and and she answered the phone and she was like, come and get him. (laughs) (laughs) And so, and he was passed out. He was sleeping. He was, you know, tired. Yeah. He was sleeping. So we, I said, all right, it's going to be an hour and a half. And, and yeah. so we drive all the way back to the house and Smokey goes and gets him. And Joe just, he was cool. He woke up and he goes, oh, we're ready to go. 
<laughs> we already went. <laughs> so, and um, so, uh, and, and it's funny because uh, I live in the same house. And in when I go past that room, and uh, there's a different couch now, but when I look at that guy, I would look at that place, that area, I was like, I'll never forget. That. <laughs> it was. Yeah. It was yeah. It was funny. Hey, Joe, thank you so much for your time. We'll, uh, we'll uh, I reserve the right to do this again because I know you've got so many more stories that we need to talk about. Oh, we got tons. Yeah. <laughs> All right, Kevin, thank you, guys. Mark, take care. Without doubt, the best rock and roll lyrics to describe the rock and roll lifestyle of all time. It's a very funny song. Yeah, it's it is. Just, it's, yeah, no, I like it. I think it's terrific. They were talking. Uh, that was were, a good interview. I like that Joe Vitola. He's very interesting. Nice fella. They were doing some uh, interviews the other day on artificial intelligence, and they asked Joe Walsh at a, some uh, function in Hollywood that he had attended uh, whether uh, artificial intelligence could ever take the place of rock and roll musicians. And Joe said in Joe's inimitable style, no, there's no chance of that until they can uh, uh, artificially in- intelligent someone to throw a television out of a 11th story hotel window into a swimming pool, we're safe. Yeah, he's lived a good life, the old Joe, hasn't he? <laughs> kind of subs it all up, doesn't it, with uh, with Joe Walsh? Hopefully one day we'll get him on the program as well. But I'll tell you we do have, that's your good mate Tim Henwood, who you've made some terrific music with. Oh, he makes terrific music with, with whoever he works with. He's a superstar. The- great singer, great songwriter, great guitarist. Great record producer. It's nothing he can't do. Yep, and one of the busiest men in all of showbiz, as you'll find out with uh, with this chat, where we find out all the things that he's up to at the moment. Yep, busy, busy, and more busy. Yeah, it's been great. It, like, you know, Mano and I uh, were were trying to make that record, the, the Hitney record, during the lockdowns and all that during COVID, and so now it's like a whole other world. There's just too much to do now. <laughs> yeah. We were trying to find something to do back then, weren't we, mate? Oh, well, there was nothing to do, so, no. you know. Well, we yeah, used mate. our time productively. Well, you know, it's a wonderful album and, you know. Yeah, it's great. You, you, 
uh, just a terrific producer. Um, you know, you just seem to find a slot for everything to go. So it's not competing, but it's all there. And oh, you're um, too kind, mate. You're too and, kind. And your backing vocals on. Oh, you know, you you're one of the few blokes who can sound like Bon Scott. But, <laughs> Well, you do. I, I listen to it. I go, "Geez, that sounds like Bon Scott." Yeah, and, I wish. Uh, yeah, and um, yeah, I, th- I think you know, you you work in the studio. I think you're probably the best or one of the best there is in Australia. I think you're just magnificent. Oh, thank you, mate. You're too kind. That's all right. So, but, what are you uh, what are you been working on of, of recent times? Tell us, take us, take us through what you've been. Because the last thing uh, I think I saw on Facebook, and that was a Palace of the King single. A new Palace of the Kings single coming every eight weeks. Yeah. Uh, yeah, and then an album in December. Because uh, I, I find I find if you put an album out, it, the, everyone's forgotten about it three weeks later, whereas this way they forget about the single after three or four weeks, then there's another one to follow up and then it'll go all the way through to the album. I'm just trying to keep in people's faces, you know. Yep. But other than, yeah, so Palace of the King stuff, I've also been recording mm. a Palace of the King blues album, which will come out next year sometime, just because the boys are really good at playing blues. Shawnee uh, is a fantastic blues piano player and um, and Lee plays a great harmonica. So that's just an experiment. I just always, as as Mano knows, same as Mano, always looking for projects and things to do. It's it's great fun. Um, but other than that, lots of stuff in the studio. So I've been doing some stuff with Ella Hooper. <laughs> Ella's got a song on the new Kevin Borich album, which I recorded her vocal for. So that's really good. Uh, so did you do so, the Borich album or is, is this just a... Yeah, uh, just, just the vocal for it though. So uh, Kevin had his producer record the band track and then... He sent it to us and Alla and I did her vocal in my studio uh, and she was great on it. But, but it's really good. I'm, I'm interested to hear that album because some of the people he's got on the album singing with him are really interesting and Alla, Alla's was fantastic. So is it a duet between Ella and, and yeah. Kev? Oh, wow. Yeah. So he's got, uh, you know, it seems to be a lot of people are doing it at the moment, the duets albums, but uh, – their, their song is is really cool. I hadn't heard the song before, so I'm not sure if Kevin wrote it or if it's uh, like an old an old cover or something, but it's some, just, yeah, something I hadn't heard before. It's really, really good. What's Fantastic. it called, Tim? Yep. Can't remember. <laughs> the, amount of, the amount of material that's going through your head at the moment, yeah. I'm, not, I'm not in the least bit surprised. <laughs> yeah, um, well, it was yesterday I was working on uh, I'm working on another album for this eccentric artist guy in 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 Melbourne. He's probably just as if not more eccentric than Brian, but he's wow. a um, he's an artist as in like and similar to Brian, he he creates artwork and he's got all these things that he wants to do. And um, but I was doing that yesterday, and I've got so much going through my head. I didn't realise until the end of the day that. I'd done one song twice, like I had two. <laughs> and I went, well, gee, this song sounds familiar. And then I looked at it and I went, ah, you've already done this one. Oh, so anyway, boy. Did you yeah, do it, did you do it any differently the second time? <laughs> no, I didn't. But I didn't tell him what was going on either because I, I was working on my own. So it's because I've been playing guitar, uh, as uh, Mano knows, Brian and I did a Brian Mannix and the Androids couple of shows in Tassie with um, John Stevens 
And that was around about the same time that I started playing guitar for John. But that's all been quite quiet um, for a while now. We've got, like, basically six months off. So I just thought everyone who'd been asking me to do studio stuff, I thought, well, let's I'll get in the studio and I'll get all of that done, you know. So there haven't been that many gigs, but it's been mm-hmm. mainly um, – Mainly working on the studio stuff, you know, working on a, a mixing a, a a live James Rain record at the moment, Brian's mate, and <laughs> oh, <laughs> and uh, what else? There's lots of stuff going on at the moment. Yeah. So, oh, and this young band called Lash Seventy Eight from Geelong. These sisters, I don't know if you've ever heard of them, but they're um. They're such great singers. They're amazing. So it was like the last time. I haven't, gee, I haven't really had a bad experience with um, recording singers in a long time. I remember during COVID when Brian came in the studio, <laughs> he had his six pack and his packet of cigarettes. Came in and he had a listen and 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 was saying, "Yeah, sounds pretty good. All right, just let me have a ciggy," and uh, crack crack <laughs> cracked one of his VBs. He said, uh, "I'll just have that ciggy and then we'll come back in and we'll do it." And he came in and he just like bam, like sung it, and I just went. Oh, mate, I don't know. I think that's it. You've done it. <laughs> nah, 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 let's do it again. So he did it like two times, maybe three, and that was the vocal that we've got on our version of Rebel Yell on, on Spotify. Yeah. It's unreal. Yeah, so it's, it's, a, it's a really good album, but, you know, it's a really good album because of you. You did. Oh, you, worked on on it for, you worked on it for ages, did everything, <laughs> and then I come in for one day, whack down some vocals, and I'm out. So, yeah, um, well, that's more what credit happens to you. When, that's what happens when you've got the magic tonsils of Brian Mannix. <laughs> so I have to ask the question, uh, did he have a, a cigarette and a, a vodka cruiser when he did the Britney Spears vocal? <laughs> it sounds like he did, doesn't it? <laughs> so I love that, the Britney Spears one. I love it. So does Brian. You know, we, yeah. were like, we, we were sure radio would start playing that because it's such, it's such a great version. I love, it really is. I love um, Mano's. You know, kind of Barry White. Oh, baby. Oh, baby. <laughs> there it is. There it is. I love that. So good. Oh, hell, woman, look at me. Yeah. <laughs> so it's good. It's been, been refined over years. the years. Trust me, he's been doing it for a long time now, Tim. <laughs> oh, so, so good. I can't wait to do some more gigs, actually. I've been trying yeah. to speak to our agent to figure it all out and get some more gigs happening so that uh, – yeah. We can we can get out there and do some more Brian Monix and the Android shows because it's so much fun. So I know yeah. this, is, this is a cliched question, I know, but you obviously have fun in the studio. You have fun live. Yeah. What yeah. is what is the happier of the two places for you? Live, yeah, I love live. But 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 I've always had you know ever since I was a kid, I had my little four track like we all did, and but I would record other people's songs on my four tracks. So they'd come to my house in my bedroom at mum and dad's and I'd record songs, program the drum machine and play guitar on it for them. And and uh, so I've always been, I've always really wanted, to, had the interest in being, and loved being in the studio and I still do. Um, but I do, there's something about the live thing that just, it, that's what, that's what, I mean, it's all started out as kids Probably the same for Brian. I mean, you're just mm. you're just looking at your favourite bands, going, "I just want to do that. I just want to do gigs and and play music and have a have an audience there who like my music, you know." And thankfully for both of us, we've been able to do that throughout our lives, you know. What I'm hearing, um, Tim, is that 
you really liked the studio work when it was in your bedroom and you could coax people into your bedroom. But now, <laughs> but now the studio is just a proper studio. And there's no bed there. <laughs> yeah. So it's not quite as enjoyable as what it no. used to be. Yeah, right. it used to have a magic about it. <laughs> is that what you call it? Oh, okay. it, was, it was more physical back then. <laughs> yeah, okay. Yeah, a bit more magical. But I bet you you're happy it wasn't in the bedroom when you did your vocal, mate. Well, I don't think you would have had a fridge in there. Well, my VBs would have got warm. Oh, so. it's very true. It was so <laughs> that was such a classic day that day. And yeah. and and remember, it was what it was one of those things where, um, you know, it was like the lockdowns would be you're only allowed one person. Yeah. Suddenly, you were allowed to go to work with one other person, and so then I'd say to you, Mano. I'm allowed to go to work and have one other person with me. Come in and do the vocals. And you'd yeah. come in and it was all such a strange time, wasn't it? Yeah, it was weird as hell. Um, it's so but, great you know, that we got that album out of it, though. Like we've got well, this great great piece yeah. of artwork that we made together. Oh, the, the, the artwork that you got made is terrific. I love the cover of the album. It just looks fantastic. Yeah, isn't that awesome? Well, yeah. it was your idea and I just hit up. I just hit up some guy on Fiverr and said, hey, you, Brian's got this idea about making it like this classic um, sort of horror cartoon magazine yeah. cover, magazine yeah, cover. Yeah, that's right. And he went, yeah, I get what you're saying, and he sent it back. I was like, hello, there it is. No changes, that's perfect. Yeah, it was yeah, good. Really exactly. good. Really good. Mm. And the name Hit Me is great too. That was another one of Mannix's calls. That's a great call. Well, because it's all full of it's from covers, so oh, except for two, I think. Didn't you write yeah, one? Yeah. So you wrote one song, didn't you? Yeah, Man- Mano wrote one. Yeah, yeah. and and um, do it. Here comes Madonna's the day again. It. Yeah, here comes the day again, and um, oh yeah, and do it with Madonna. That's right. Do it with Madonna's on there too. Yeah, so the two originals, and the rest are all covers, but very, very good versions of the songs. Very. Yeah, Tim, good. have you been doing some stuff with Eve as well? With Eve von Bibra? Did you do? Some That's stuff? right. Yeah, the last Entuzzi single um, was a studio. Was a song that I did at the studio. It was, and yeah, I've had the girls, even Ali, in the studio working on bits and pieces. Bet you wish you were still stuff. recording in your bedroom. Hello. <laughs> <laughs> no, the girls are fantastic, as Brian knows. Brian's known them longer than me and does lots well, of work with them. Well, Eve told us that um, she had like a riff and she said, oh, that's a guitar riff there. And you said, no, it's not. It's a vocal riff. Yeah, isn't it great? Because yeah, she's humming really it to me. Cool. She was sort of singing it to me and I said, so why, why would we play that on anything else? It sounds unreal the way you're doing it. And she went, "What are you talking about?" I said, "Trust me, let's record it, and you'll see how it how it sounds. It sounds so quirky and interesting that way." Yeah, yeah, it's it's um, it's unusual, but it's it's really cool. So uh, yeah, you know, yeah, I agree. Um, yeah, you took a chance and it paid off. So well done on that. Yeah, thanks, mate. I was trying to actually make it a cappella, but we 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 caved in the end. It was like it's so close to having it purely a cappella. And then, and then I put in a couple of drum beats and a couple of quirky effects, and sh- and we just both went, ah, oh, they've got to stay now, don't they? And it was like, yeah, we can't have it totally a cappella. Maybe next time. Yeah, fair enough. Yeah, it's really good. We're going to do an a cappella song with you soon, mate. What do you think? Uh, don't know. I think my voice is probably best sandwiched between a couple of distorted <laughs> guitars. <laughs> Maybe you should do some swing, uh, record some swing stuff now that you've oh. got the got the appetite for it. 
Yeah, I do. Like, I would do a swing album. I think that'd be fun. Um, Maybe you, know? you and you and uh, the boys from the gig, Scott and and Wilbur, yeah. should do an album together. Oh, well, I'll talk to That's Scott. That'd be a good man. idea. That'd be fun. That'd be good. I'd really enjoy that. Yeah, um, you just get those boys that came in to play. Were they all just like really good? Swing jazz musicians who could read yeah. charts and yeah, that's yeah. beautiful. Wasn't the it Smacker Fitzgibbon's son? Yeah, Mark Fitzgibbon's the uh, MD and yeah, you know right. our bass our bass player was in a car accident after oh, the rehearsal and yeah. um, so we had to get a new bass player in, but because it's all charted, it doesn't that's make right. any difference yeah. really. So it's just like even the drummer is, you know, doing some really weird drumming, but it's all charted and Got it you. all works out great. Yeah. So twenty twenty three, what uh, the you got? You got the, the Palace of the King singles, and then the album in December. Uh, you got obviously your mix. You said you're mixing the James Rain live. Yep. Work. Yeah, yeah, and I've got uh, the record I'm making with um, with Marjan, who's my crazy artist friend, oh, and right. uh, I've got. More stuff to do with Lash 78, the Geelong band. We've only done one song, but it's so what are they called, Tim? La- is it Latch? Lash, L A S H 78. Okay, yeah, I have yeah. heard of and them. You, yep. you, yeah, you can find them on, on Spotify. They're fantastic young sisters who just sing amazingly. Mm. And then um, more gigs coming up with, with John Stevens later in the year, and hopefully. At some point, I can get Brian Mannix and the Androids back there. I'm, I'm yeah. hoping that I, I think we'd be perfect for a Red Hot Summer tour, Mano. Yeah, it'd be good. Um, it's got to get I your mean, mate Frank to book it. Well, yeah, well, I don't know. Frank, you know, he gets excited about you for about three weeks and then he forgets about you. But um, Ah, we'll be right. Anyway, we'll be I'll right. Keep, no. I'll keep on him. I'm trying. Yeah, yeah, no, I'd love to do that. And um, maybe we know, bring I, the boys up to Queensland and do some gigs up there, so you don't have to go anywhere. Yeah, well, that's fine. I'm It'd be so, nice at this time of year, that's for sure. Well, it's it's only about twenty degrees here today, so it's you know oh, a little it's bit cold. A little <laughs> bit cold. It's a bit cold. It's five degrees here this morning. And there was yeah. ice on the grass. Oh, no, you can have that. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> so you're writing, Tim, as well. No, always constantly writing. So um, a lot of the blues album, the Palace of the King album, will be our own songs. So um, I'm working on those at the moment. And also the uh, the Palace of the King thing is always constant, basically. Yep. So it, that's I've sort of got a new song started for that where that'll be – after the album in December and then after the blues album, there'll be another album, then maybe 2024 or five or something. So I've already started writing songs for that. No, I've got, I'm working on one, which I'll, might, when I finish it, I'll, oh. I'll bring it to you. Oh, no. <laughs> yeah. no you'll, love, you'll love this. Oh, no. Yeah. Um, I'm in. I, I was walking past the keyboard player's girlfriend and she said, Show me the photos from the toilet. And I just went, Show me the photos from the toilet. That's a great opening line. <laughs> so at the moment I've got, show me the photos from the toilet. Let's yeah. see what shit be going down. <laughs> we're in love, you had to spoil it. I need to see the photos now. Oh, I love it, gets, it. And then it gets worse. But um, <laughs> haven't I got the chorus it. yet. But, yeah, I, right. I, thought it, I thought it'd be right up your alley. Yeah, well, once you get once you get your chorus written, come on next time you're down yeah. in Melbourne, or come on down where we get the boys in there and we'll record it up, mate. Yeah, yeah that'd be great. Yeah, I love it. Um, I can already hear it. Yeah, and I, 
And I think you got to stop. I, I'll talk to you about that another time. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, maybe off, maybe offline. Don't give people ideas. Yeah, I've got, I've got a really good idea about the timing in it. But anyway, we'll, we'll talk about that at another time. I love it. I'm in. Yeah, yeah. beautiful. Hey, uh, Tim. <laughs> uh, good luck with the Palace of the Kings. We'll, we'll keep our eye on uh, on the singles. We'll, we'll play one on the show. Um, it's it's called Children of the Evolution. Oh, okay. Oh, right. Bit of a nod to Mark Boland there. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Does it's, it sound like Mark Boland? No, not really. It's just no. it's a pretty fast kind of heavy rock song. Yeah, yeah. But we do we do T Rex is definitely uh, part of the palette that Palace of the King draws from. But in this mm-hmm. case, it's a fast song, and I just I I was just thinking it was a nice play on words, you know. And with the crazy world we're living in, it's all sort of about how everything's evolving and how yeah. we're evolving. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Well, That's th- it. Fair enough. Thank you so much for your time, mate. We really appreciate it. I'm glad we finally got this done and uh, we can we can play a bit of uh, the good music on the program. Yeah, awesome. No, any time and, and, uh, and thanks for having me. I, I love both your works, Kevin and Brian. Love your works. Well, we admire you greatly. Absolutely. Thanks. Tim Henwood, terrific bloke, talented musician, and you're going to hear his single that he talked about in there, Children of the Evolution, in just a tick. Our thanks, uh, as always, to Murcotts. That telephone number, Brian, is, let me think. 1300 555 576. 1300 555 576. Thanks to Mark Lane for uh, organising and helping out with the uh, Joe Vitale interview too. And uh, more from Glenn A. Baker, as I said, talking about being on the road with the Rolling Stones and meeting Fidel Castro, amongst other people. Um, that's coming up in part two. And still to come, we've, we've, uh, we've chatted to Ian Moss. Yes, we did. Had a good chat with Mossy. We've chatted to Colin Peterson, the drummer of the Bee Gees in their uh, halcyon days uh, in the late part of the 60s and, of course, a very talented actor in his own right. He was Smiley in the movies. Yeah, I like those Smiley movies. And I've had, a ch- I've had a chat with Kevin Rowland from Dexy's Midnight Runners, so we'll, uh, we'll bring that to you soon too. They've got a, a new album out, so Kevin's an interesting chap. Did he do it? Did he do what? Come on, Eileen. <laughs> and also I tracked down... <laughs> <laughs> Leslie Kanawa. Now, Leslie is the lady who was the singer in uh, that band Promises that had that enormous hit Baby It's You back in the late oh. 1970s. She's got the big hooters. I tracked her down and had a chat with her about uh, where she is these days, what she's up to. Fascinating woman. So that's uh, that's all coming up in future episodes. And are you ready, Brian? I haven't told you this one. Also, no. also coming soon to life of Brian yes. dot 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 Manix. That is thanks to our very good friends at Murcotts. You and I yes. are going to be talking to TMG. Sebo again? Yes. It's going to be a little awkward, isn't it? They've got a new single out. No, we're not talking to Ted, Brian. We're not that good. Um, right. We have a, they have a new single out, so we're going to be talking to TMG in coming episodes as well. I'm tipping the uh, the song will go bum 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 a lot. <laughs> it's called La La. So we'll we'll play it and we'll la, go la, talk. La 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 la. Yeah. Did you yeah. co-write it? No, no, I'm just, <laughs> I'm just having a, a wild stab in the dark as to what the song might sound like. Uh, well, you're not far off, I can tell you. Uh, so that's all coming up in future episodes of Life of Brian. We look forward to that. Uh, Brian, take care of yourself, and we'll uh, talk to you again very, very soon, Rockstar. 
Thank you, Kevin, and uh, thanks for listening. <laughs>